12, Second Chronicles chapter number 12 this evening. I want to preach a little bit of a different kind of message this evening than I normally preach. We're going to do a lot of reading, not all at one time, uh, but in a few different sections we're going to read several passages of Scripture. And I really have three points that I want to try to drive home to you this evening. And I believe we can draw maybe a line from our verse that we're going to read this evening as our text to these three different passages. And I believe we can gain some wisdom if we're careful in how we divide the word of truth and if we're yielded to the Lord as He would lead us tonight. Now, in Second Chronicles chapter 12, I'd like to read just two verses by way of, uh, of a text. In verse number 13, the Word of God says this, So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. For Rehoboam was one and forty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Nama and Ammonitus. And he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Father, I'd ask that you would open your word to us tonight. Lord, we have the ability to open this book. Lord, only you can open our hearts and place the truths of these book, this book in it. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to be yielded this evening. And, Lord, to see your will done in our hearts and lives. Speak to each of us according to your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm very interested in verse number 14. This is what I like to call sort of an epitaph in the Bible. What I mean by that is this. We're familiar with the idea of an epitaph being a little note, a little phrase, a little word even, that's written upon a person's tombstone, and that's the way that they or their family wants them to be remembered. As you study through the historical books, in particular Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles, and you study the accession of kings that sat upon the thrones of Judah and the throne of Israel, then you'll find that there are several times in the history of those kings when the Holy Scriptures will say just a small word about their life and will sum it up in a very succinct and very distinct way. And when we look at the life of Rehoboam, I believe that God would have us to remember about his life, that his life was marked by evil, and the reason for that was because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. You know, we live in a day where everything is done for us. I mean, everything that we get, you know, the meals we eat, they're already cooked and frozen and ready to go, and you just stick them in the microwave. And, uh, you know, even complex technological issues now, they've got little menus that walk you through them. Uh, some of you may have done your taxes or maybe are going to do your taxes this year on one of these tax softwares, and they can take the tens of thousands of pages of the tax code and boil them down to just a handful of colorful uh, buttons and memos that you click on. And we're sort of used to having things done for us. You know, Rehoboam was a man that had a good and noble design and desire in his life, but there was one main thing that prevented him from being able to realize it. Now, it does not say that Rehoboam did not seek the Lord. There are some of the kings, particularly of Israel and some even of Judah, who had no desire to seek the Lord. 
They did not want to know God, the God of Israel. They didn't want to serve Him. They didn't want to please Him. They didn't want Him having anything to do with their lives. But Rehoboam was not such a man. In fact, as you study through the life of Rehoboam, and it really is encompassed in three chapters, including the chapter that we read these verses from, you'll find there are times when no doubt Rehoboam very sincerely would turn to God and seek to see the Lord do something in his life. But it seemed as though every time Rehoboam wanted to get a good head start and give God some ground in his life, it seemed like he failed. God brings his life to a close and gives us a key, a a, a little hint, a little clue as to why he failed continuously in seeking the Lord. And it was this, that he did not prepare his heart. You know, anything in life worth doing takes preparation. I've learned that more and more since I've started to pastor, because when you're pastoring, if you're a full-time pastor, no one's looking over your shoulder. Uh, No one's making you do this, that, or the other. But you sort of have to manage your own time. And deadlines, if you're not careful, they can sneak up on you in a hurry. Some of you all always chuckle when we're talking about camp or something. And I say it's 117 days out. Sometimes I see folks kind of laugh and look at each other like, well, that's silly. How does he know that? Let me let you in on a little secret. I know that because I have to know that. Because if I don't know that, I'll wake up tomorrow and it'll be the first day of camp. Amen? I mean, it gets away from you that quickly. And I do the same thing with vacation Bible school and with anything else that we're doing around here. I I try to do that so that it will drive me to prepare and not allow things to sneak up on me. By the same token, this matter of seeking God, of knowing God, of grabbing hold of God, however you want to define it, is a matter that's going to take preparation if we're going to see it come to pass. Now, let me say that I'm glad that his getting a hold of me does not have anything to do with how prepared I am. But I do understand that my getting a hold of him has a lot of preparation that's involved. It's not something that you just wake up one day and say, well, I think I'll get a hold of God today. Well, I think think I'll get my life in order today. Uh, Oftentimes, if we're going to see that happen, there's going to have to be some things we're going to have to get straightened out first. When we look at the life of Rehoboam, these three chapters present basically three stories about him. And they're basically the same that we uh, receive in the book of 2 Kings as well. And they present to us three individual narratives that I want us to read. And I want to just give you three thoughts very simply about things he did not prepare himself for that I think if you're really going to get your life where it needs to be with God, you're going to have to prepare yourself for it. Turn back to chapter 10 with me. And we're going to read the whole chapter. Now, it's just 19 verses. That's not too long. Amen. Uh, If it was 19 plays on a football field, we'd pass it without even thinking about it. Amen. But 19 verses in Scripture, it won't be too bad. And I want you to listen. This is sort of when he is introduced. Verse 1 says this, When Rehoboam went to Shechem, for to Shechem where all Israel come to make him king. Now Solomon, his father, has died, you understand. And Rehoboam is the uh, rightful heir to the throne. And all of Israel is in Shechem. They're waiting on him. So he goes to Shechem so that he can be crowned. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was in Egypt, whither he had fled from the presence of Solomon the king, heard it, that Jeroboam returned out of Egypt. And they sent and called him. So Jeroboam and all Israel came and spake to Rehoboam, saying, 
Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore ease thou somewhat the grievous servitude of thy father and his heavy yoke that he put upon us, and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Come again unto me after three days. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men that had stood before Solomon his father while he had yet lived, saying, What counsel give ye me to return answer to this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou be kind to this people, and please them, and speak good words to them, they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel which the old men gave him, and took counsel with the young men that were brought up with him that stood before him. And he said unto them, What advice give ye, that we may return answer to this people which have spoken to me, saying, Ease somewhat the yoke that thy father did put upon us. And the young men that were brought up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou answer the people uh, that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it somewhat lighter for us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. For whereas my father put a heavy yoke upon you, I will put more to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king bade, saying, Come again to me on the third day. And the king answered them roughly. And King Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the old men and answered them after the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add thereto. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was of God, that the Lord might perform His word, which He spake by the hand of Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king would not hearken unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? And we have none inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to your tents, O Israel, and now David, see to thine own house. So all Israel went to their tents. But as for the children of Israel that dwelt in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Hadram that was over the tribute, and the children of Israel stoned him with stones that he died. But King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot to flee to Israel. And verse 19 says this, And Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. Now, this is the first mistake that Scripture reveals to us in the life of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was certainly not a perfect man. No doubt he made many mistakes before this. But the scriptural narrative introduces us to him with this first and chief political blunder. And I think as we look at this, that we get a good idea about the first problem that Rehoboam had. And I want you to think about this with me. If you're going to seek the Lord and you've got to prepare your heart to do so, you've got to prepare yourself to receive counsel. Now, Rehoboam had a choice that he had to make. And uh, it's funny because when you read these things, you know, in, in a lot of ways, things change so rapidly. And things are not the same today that they were seven years ago or 15 years ago or, uh, you know, however many years before that, every political cycle that comes along, uh, you know, things change. But in other ways, things never change. Uh, in some ways, they are ever-changing. But in other ways, you can always count on this, that a politician will most always tell you a lie to try to get your vote. Somebody say amen to that. Well, Rehoboam didn't get that advice. Amen. Uh, he, he heard that from the old men, but the young men said this. You see, during Solomon's day, things have been pretty hard on the nation of Israel. Now, in some ways, they enjoyed prosperity. They enjoyed uh, power. They enjoyed prominence and rest and sovereignty. But it took a lot of money. Now, I want you to listen now. Anything, there's no such thing as anything free. Somebody say amen to that. 
Anything, and this is an age-old lesson, anything that the government does, it's got to cost somebody something. Well, it was the same way in Solomon's day. You build a big, beautiful temple, it's going to cost somebody something. You build the king's house in the cedars of Lebanon, it's going to cost something. And their chief complaint was that in Solomon's day, we were just taxed to death. We worked and we worked and we saved and we were taxed. And we worked and we were taxed and we worked and we were taxed. Rehoboam, what's your reign going to be like? And faced with this problem, he goes to two sets of advisors. And he goes to the old men that had walked with Solomon. He says, what do you think I ought to do? And they say, you know, if you'll just be kind to these people, they'll be yours forever. If you'll ease their burden, they'll love you dearly. And you know what Rehoboam said? He said, you know, here's the problem. I understand what you're saying, but that's not what I want to do. That's not the advice I like. I'm going to find somebody that will tell me what I want to hear. Let me tell you, in this day that we live in, we have to understand that if there's a problem in our life, that means that something's going to have to change for things to get straightened out. Amen? I mean, most of us would admit that our walk with God is not where we wish it was. So we have to be willing and open to hear about what might be wrong with our walk with God. The Word of God says this, that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And the reality is that none of us knows everything. And uh, somebody that thinks they know everything can be taught absolutely nothing. Now, we all in principle would claim that we need advice and help. But a lot of times that's relative to the kind of advice that we get. You see, Rehoboam acknowledged that he needed advice. He acknowledged he needed somebody to give him guidance. But when he got guidance that wasn't palatable to his flesh and his desires, he said, I'm not interested in that kind of help. I want somebody to tell me what I want to hear. Now, we all know, I mean, the people in this room, we understand how epidemic this is in the Christian church. And we could point to 100,000 churches falsely so-called where there's some preacher that gets up, tickles ears, and so on and so forth. Let me say that you can have the same approach and attitude in a Bible-believing church that Rehoboam had. And you may not have it by getting mad and stomping out, but you do have it whenever you listen and you say to yourself within your heart, well, that's good, preacher. Maybe you listen to a Sunday school teacher and you think, well, teacher, that's good, but it's just not good for me. You know, truth is good for everybody. Truth is equally good, and it's equally good for everybody. If I need it, you need it. Somebody say amen to that. If the person next to you need it, then you need it. If you need it, the person next to you needs it. And the reality is that we all need truth and wisdom and guidance. I wrote a little thing whenever, uh, after we had had a uh, little man, and you know, I was thinking about parenthood. And you do that a lot when you're a parent, because that's really all you've got time to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was thinking about what it's like being, you know, a parent, and uh, the experience of, of having a child and going through the pregnancy. And one of the things that I think everybody that has had a child can testify to is that during that time of pregnancy, you get a lot of advice, you know. You get a lot of advice all the time. You get advice from everybody. You get advice when you ask for it. You get advice when you don't ask for it. You get advice when you threaten that if somebody gives you advice, you're going to pop them on the nose. You still get advice. It's just the reality of life, and, and it's part of the experience. And, you know, one of the dangers is this, that someone that needs advice inherently does not know whether they're hearing good advice or bad advice. See, if you could tell good advice from bad advice, you wouldn't know you needed advice. Uh, the fact is that in our Christian walk, there's a lot of different places that we can get counsel and advice. We can turn the TV on, we can find a daytime talk show host that will tell us that it's everybody else's problem. 
Uh, we can turn on, we can hear a politician say that it's all the government's problem. We can turn TV on, hear a politician say it's none of the government's problem. Everywhere that we go, we can find a myriad of different counselors and different sources of quote-unquote wisdom. And yet, we know this to be absolutely true, that this Bible that sits in front of us is perfect, pure, unmitigated truth and wisdom. And we have to be willing to receive the counsel of it. Now listen, I've never met anybody. I've never met anybody that thought they knew everything that you could help them. One of the first prerequisites, if you're going to seek God, is you've got to be willing to be told how to find God. If we want things to get right, we have to be willing to, be, to listen when somebody tells us where it's wrong. If we acknowledge that something needs to change, then we need to be willing to hear from the Word of God, not from someone's opinion, but from the Word of God, where and what needs to be changed. And if you're not ready to listen, then you're not ready to seek God. Because the first step in seeking God is listening. You see, we have a bad habit of doing all the talking. And I, let, me, let me put both my hands up for that. I mean, I, if there's anything that I don't have trouble doing, it's, it's talking. Uh, we all have a bad time, uh, you know, talking too much, or most of us do, and not listening when we ought to. But you know, this is true, that you cannot talk and listen at the same time. That's one bit of multitasking that nobody can accomplish. And we have to be willing and content to sit back and hear the truth of the Word of God, even when it's an uncomfortable truth, even when it's an inconvenient truth. You understand that Rehoboam had great plans for his kingdom. And the plan, the counsel that was given to him interrupted and interfered with those plans. And yet, because he refused to listen, it meant the destruction and division of the nation of Israel. Man, I wonder how many things in our life that we wish we could go back and somebody gave us wisdom and counsel and we look back at the mess that was made and we say to ourselves, boy, I wish I could have just gone back and listened. But you know, I find this to be true as well, that folks that are up in years in life and they look back to who they were when they were 16, 17 years old and they think to themselves, boy, I wish I could make myself listen back then. Sometimes those very same people are not even so content willing to listen even at that moment. The fact is, we never outgrow the need of counsel and wisdom. We say that again. We never outgrow the need of counsel and wisdom. Not until we have our uh, minds uh, changed and our bodies changed to be like unto His glorious body will we ever outgrow the need for wisdom and counsel. And so our hearts need to always be open to the truth of God's Word. I'd say, number one, that He did not prepare Himself to receive counsel. But look over at chapter 11. I want you to notice the second thing that happens in Rehoboam's life. Now, we're going to read a little more than we'd have to, and the reason we're going to do that is because I want to give you some context to what we're going to look at. Look at verse number 5. It says, And Rehoboam dwelt in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. He built even Bethlehem and Edom and Tekoa and Bethzer and Shoko and Agilom and Gath and Mereshah and Ziph and Adoram and Lachish and Azekah and Zorah and Agilon and Hebron, which are in Judah, and in Benjamin fenced cities. And he fortified the strongholds and put captains in them in store of victual and of oil and wine. And in every several city he put shields and spears and made them exceeding strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. And the priests and the Levites that were in all Israel resorted to him out of all their coasts. 
For the Levites left their suburbs and their possession and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office unto the Lord. And he ordained him priests for the high places and for the devils and for the calves which he had made. Now this is speaking of Jeroboam. And after them, out of all of the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam the son of Solomon strong three years. For three years they walked in the way of David and Solomon. Now let me just pause here for a moment and say that things are going very, very well for Rehoboam. Uh, It's true that the kingdom is split. Rehoboam decides he's going to go out against Jeroboam, who has committed this sort of mutiny against his authority. But God stops him from doing that. He says, Rehoboam, this thing was of me. If you go out against him, you're going to get defeated. I've got a plan in this. And so Rehoboam is satisfied with that. And he backs off. He begins to build the cities of Judah. He begins to lay up stores of supplies. He begins to strengthen himself. He uh, gathers all the Levites of the land. They leave because Jeroboam is persecuting them. And he says, well, just come on to Jerusalem and you can worship there. He's got a group of people that love God, that are seeking God. I mean, this is a time, if there was ever a time in his life, it was prime for him to seek God and to seek the Lord. This was the time. Everything was set. Everything was ready. And for three years, the nation walked in the way of David and Solomon. But listen to this. And Rehoboam took Himalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, to wife. And Abihail, the daughter of Eliab, the son of Jesse, which bare him children, Jeush and Shemariah and Zaim. And after her he took Makah, the daughter of Absalom, which bare him Abijah and Adai and Ziza and Shelemith. And Rehoboam loved Makah, the daughter of Absalom, above all his wives and his concubines. And I want you to listen to this. For he took eighteen wives and threescore concubines. Eighteen wives and threescore concubines. Seventy-eight women. And begat twenty and eight sons and threescore daughters. He has eighty-eight children. And Rehoboam made Abijah, the son of Makah, the chief, to be ruler among his brethren, for he thought to make him king. And he dealt wisely and dispersed of all his children throughout all the countries of Judah and Benjamin unto every fenced city, and he gave them victual in abundance. Now let me pause there and say this. This is a man that his kingdom is secure. The most godly people in the nation have gathered themselves, and for three years they've been walking in the ways of David and Solomon. He's got years' worth of stores and victuals laid up. He has rest on every side. This is a man that has 78 wives and 88 children. And chapter number 11 ends this way, and he desired many wives. Now, that's a man I have trouble figuring out. For a lot of reasons, I could joke, and I guess it is sort of funny. I mean, why he'd want 78 wives. You know, most of us can barely handle the one. But at the end of the day, I think what you're seeing is a man that has not prepared himself to rest in the contentment of what God has given him. This is a man that is always looking to the next greatest thing to make him happy. You know, one of the ways we prepare our heart to seek the Lord is by acknowledging that nothing other than the Lord can satisfy our heart. As long as we think it's going to be the next job, the next paycheck, the next car, the next home, the next wardrobe, 
the next toy, whatever it is, we're never going to be satisfied. How a man winds up with 78 wives and 88 children, I do not know, except to say this, that every time that he married a wife or took a concubine, he found the same hollowness that he had felt before. And he just continued and continued and continued because he wasn't seeking satisfaction in the right place. I've seen marriages fall apart because spouses expected the other spouse to do for them what only the God of heaven could do for them. I love my wife. I love her with all my heart. I'm thoroughly satisfied with her. But there are certain things that only God can satisfy. There are certain needs that only God can meet. There are certain things that God must do in my heart and life. It's not fair for me as a husband to expect of her for her to be my all and all and everything. For only Jesus can be my all and all and everything. It's not fair for her to look to me to give her peace of heart because only God can give peace. It's not up to her to look to me to try to somehow provide for her relationship with God were she not willing to pursue it herself. For only God can have that relationship with her. And the reality is this, you can only find contentment and satisfaction in the God of heaven. Until you really believe that, you're not ready to seek the Lord. Let me tell you why, because you're always going to get distracted seeking something else. You know, that's what happened to Rehoboam. He's in the best place of his life to seek God. And he's running after another wife or another concubine. After this point in his life, and there are victories in his life after this, But after this point in his life, I don't know that there was ever a time that was so ideal for him to get a hold of God and to know God and to turn the nation for the glory of God. And he missed it because he was looking for something else to meet his needs. If there is anything I could, if I had some way to do it, make young people understand, it's this. There's a lot of wonderful things in the world. And there's a lot of wonderful pleasures in the world. And some of them are bad, but not all of them are. But at the end of the day, they're all fleeting. And none of them will make you as happy as Jesus Christ will. And you can have every one of those things. But if you have them apart from a relationship with God, it will never be enough. I saw in the news just this past week, this won't mean anything to most of the older folks, but there was a fellow when I was growing up by the name of Dave Mira. And I don't know if you saw this in the news at all, but Dave Mira was sort of a pioneer in the BMX bike movement. And uh, I know that don't mean nothing to old folks. That, you know, bicycle ain't for nothing but getting around. But, but I mean, he, he was premier in his field. And uh, he, he was the guy that really made it a, a sport, quote-unquote, that was national, that was known, that was appreciated. And Dave Mirror just this past week at the age of 41 years old took his own life. Now, how does that happen? It wasn't but just maybe a year, year and a half ago that Robin Williams, who was one of the most well-known and well-loved... Listen, I understand he was a vulgar man. I understand that he probably didn't know God. But you see, that's the very issue. We look at it and say, how could it happen? And the lost world says, oh, he just had a problem. The lost world says, oh, he just couldn't make himself laugh. Whatever they want to say. I'll tell you what it is. There's a big hole in in a man's heart and it's the shape and size of God and nothing can fill it but God. And if he doesn't fill it, it's not going to get filled. You're not going to be satisfied. You've got to learn not only to receive counsel, but to rest in the contentment that only God gives and to seek Him and Him alone. I want you to turn to chapter 12. And I want to just read five verses, and I'm going to say a word about this and close. Chapter number 12 gives sort of a last instance in Rehoboam's life. Now, there's a few other things said here. 
But really, they are in the close of his life. And this is sort of the last narrative. Verse number 1 begins this way. And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord with twelve hundred chariots and threescore thousand horsemen. And the people were without number that came with him out of Egypt, the Lubims, the Shukims, and the Ethiopians. And he took the fenced cities which pertained to Judah and came to Jerusalem. Then came Shemaiah the prophet to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. You know, I think that his first problem, or the first thing he was unprepared to do, was to receive counsel. And if we want to get a hold of God, we've got to be willing to listen. Listen to the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, and more importantly, listen to the Spirit of God as He speaks to us and deals with us. We've got to be willing to rest in the contentment that only God can give. We have to understand that only God can meet that need, that longing, that yearning in our life. But then I would say this, that we have to prepare ourselves to resist the complacency that would seek to overtake us in our lives. It's very simple. Verse 1, after He had established the kingdom and strengthened Himself, after these things, once His problems all left, Once he had everything he needed, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. You know, what a temptation it is in this day of air conditioning and padded pews, in this day of sound systems and and paved parking lots and automobiles that can get us to church really a lot faster than any of us legally should get to church. It's amazing that we've lost the very thing that always drove the New Testament church, which was a fierce hunger and thirst after righteousness. We got everything we need, so we don't think we need it anymore. You know, that's the indictment against the church in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. That here they were, and they were rich and increased with goods. They said, we have need of nothing. The Lord said, here's the problem. That's what you look like from where you sit. But if you sat where I sit, you'd see that you're poor and blind and wretched and miserable and naked. You'd see that all the things that matter are missing. You know, if we're really going to seek God, we have to resist that warm blanket of complacency, of living in the freest country in the world. And I'm not saying we afflict ourselves. I'm not saying we live recklessly. I'm saying we need to acknowledge that there's some things that, that can't be bought with a monetary price. They're bought in the prayer closet. They're bought through commitment, through dedication, through focus, and through seeking and pursuing after God. That warm blanket of complacency and comfort. Let me tell you something. It'll lullaby you to sleep before you know it. We've got our Bibles. We've got the clothes that we need. We've got the Bibles that we need. We've got the buildings that we need, the pews that we need, the pulpits we need. But we're missing the hunger that we used to have. As a nation, we're missing the hunger that we used to have. Man, you see it all over the all over the country. I'm sure that you've seen it. You see pictures of people standing in waist-deep water worshiping God in other countries. You see people that are having to, to go under cover of darkness and under threat of imprisonment to just get a hold of a scrap of a piece of a paper of a Bible so that they can meet and worship. And they're rejoicing in doing it. And here we sit with all that we need, but we just don't have the need anymore. 
We just don't have the need anymore. If we're going to get hold of God, we're going to have to prepare ourselves for it. It's not just going to happen. We're going to have to prepare ourselves for it. Rehoboam did not make up his mind. He did not set out to live in an evil or wicked manner. And yet at the end of his life, it wasn't, it wasn't persistence that brought about wickedness in his life. It was a lack of preparedness that did it. You don't have to try to waste your life. You just have to not try to make it count. And that will waste it. And you'll wake up one day at the judgment seat of Christ and you'll watch everything all the time, all the prayer, all the dedication, all the work, all the miles, you'll watch it burn up as it meant nothing. You say, well, I did my best when the reality is we haven't. The question is, will we prepare ourselves to do our best? Will we take the measures that's needed to seek an Almighty God with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed?